Hi, this is Tony, and before we begin, I wanted to talk about you for a second. Picture this. You have a step-by-step roadmap to launch and grow a business that makes an impact, and you're surrounded by a thriving community of like-minded changemakers. What would that make possible? Could you create significant change in the world? Could you do work that matters? Could you help those who can't help themselves? Well, that's why we've launched the Social Entrepreneur Six-Week Quick Start. And we're bringing together aspiring social entrepreneurs for six weeks of live interactive sessions starting on Monday, July 12th, 2021. So this is your opportunity to join a movement, to achieve results faster, to get access to a roadmap to success. But to sign up, you have to go to cultureshift.com and hit the Get Access button. But hurry, because this course kicks off on Monday, July 12th, 2021, and you don't want to miss it. So take action right now, and I hope to see you there. Now, let's get to this episode. It's only failure if you quit. Mm. And by quit, I don't mean your startup doesn't work and you move on. I mean, you walk away from your purpose or your mission. Welcome to Social Entrepreneur. My name is Tony Lloyd. I'm a former Fortune 500 executive, but today I spend my time with changemakers who are making an impact in the world. We hear exciting stories of ordinary people just like you who are making a difference. They share their successes, their failures, and what they're learning along the way. Thanks for being with me today. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome back to Social Entrepreneur and today's guest, Kate Glance of Luma Legacy. Now listen, Kate is a great example of service doesn't have to look a certain way. Kate has worked in nonprofits. She's worked in the government. She started a startup. She's worked in large corporations. She even worked with the Chamber of Commerce. And today she's with Luma Legacy. And it's a company that's built on compassion and empathy. They have these three pillars. They're building bridges across America. They're catalyzing civic participation. And they're promoting equity and justice. So here she is to tell her story, Kate Glantz of Luma Legacy. Hello, I am Kate Glantz, and I am the head of social impact at Luma Legacy. Luma Legacy, is it a division of Luma Pictures? Explain what this thing is. Luma Legacy is a segment within Luma, which is the broader portfolio company of this really magical creative studio that's been in the world for about 20 years. The sort of bread and butter of the business is making movie magic. So visual effects. Luma Pictures makes superheroes fly. It creates new worlds and realities and all of the really fun stuff keeps us entertained and dreaming big. Luma also has a venture capital arm that makes early stage investments in companies and founders changing the world uh, with really an investment thesis around future of healthcare, future of work, future of food, and the like. And Luma Features is our newest division that's actually making movies from the ground up, all really centered around the goal of creating imaginative, emotionally rich stories that 
other studios or financiers just might not take the risk on. But these are stories that need to be in the world from voices that aren't always heard. And then finally, Luma Legacy is the the segment of Luma that I was brought in about five months ago to help figure out. And the mandate, the very broad, bold, ambitious mandate is to help create a fairer, kinder world for everyone. A fairer, kinder world for everyone. (laughs) I just so love that. The Mac Foundation always says a just, peaceful, and verdant world. And the first time I heard that, I was driving to work and I heard that phrase and I thought, oh, I got to pull over and write that down. I love that phrase, right? So say it again. It's a... A fairer, kinder world for everyone. A fairer, kinder world for everyone. Okay. I love (laughs) that. I love it. All right. Fairer and kinder. Uh, We could use a lot more fairer and kinder, couldn't we? Absolutely. I think it's really facing any of these existential threats that are imminent, be it climate change or things we don't even know about yet without a certain sort of adherence to the, to participating in the social fabric of what makes us human through compassion and empathy. We're kind of screwed. Probably don't say that. (laughs) I should probably not be screwed on an interview. Um, But that's, I mean, that's, that's really where this is coming from. These are big intractable problems So climate change, racial justice, social justice, I'm in Minnesota. So racial justice is on our mind here in a major way, as it always should be. And if we don't solve climate change, then then none of that really matters. And we haven't even mentioned the fact that we're still in the middle of a pandemic, right? And that has hit us unevenly. It has hit communities of color and uh, lower income communities harder than it has others. So the world needs a lot more kindness and justice and fairness. One more question about your sort of lens for this. I know if we talk to the Gina Davis Institute for Gender in the Media, they're going to remind us, you know, about roles that are played by women in the media. They're also going to remind us about the number of directors and producers, that gender imbalance in in all that. Is that something you are seeking to address with your projects? How does that fit into your portfolio? Great question. Equity and inclusion will be a through line in everything that we do, but the macro lens that we're really looking at this work is by grouping underlying root causes to some of society's greatest problems. So we talk about it sometimes as rather than taking medicine for a sniffly nose or itchy eyes, what's actually making you sick? And so there are a number of underlying causes that have driven sort of this heightened state of polarization and revitalized and and intensified prejudice, but two that we're really looking at are apathy and intolerance. Mm -hmm. And so when you flip those, you're looking at empathy and you're looking at participation and you're looking at tolerance. And that sort of has helped us create these three pillars, which are um, building bridges across America, catalyzing civic participation, and promoting equity and justice, but more specifically, the people and policies that are helping to solidify equity and justice under the law. And so the idea is that behavior change is is a really important component, but if you are inspired or educated or moved or or full stop, (laughs) if you're inspired or educated, it's not sufficient to then walk away uh, from whatever content you consumed or interaction you had and make a sandwich and go back to life. There needs to be a clear call to action. And at that very high level, our, our goal really is to influence 
outcomes at the ballot box so that we can not just preserve, but help create a truly equitable and representative democracy. Yeah. Just one more question about Luma Legacy. And I know that you're like, you're fresh on the job. (laughs) This is a new initiative. And the questions are probably still out there. When you're thinking about the projects that you're going to be launching here, um, is it going to be feature films? Is it going to be shorts? Is it going to be web content? I mean, what kind of content are you talking about here? That's such a great question. It's what I spend all of my time thinking about. And the answer is, it's going to be what it needs to be to meet people where they are, where they gather, where they play, where they scroll. And so our theory of change and grand hypothesis is essentially trying to shift conversations in culture really at like the level the where pop culture happens. And that's in various segments of entertainment and, and arts. So music, arts, gaming, food, really where people simply are is where we'll be. And each initiative might have a different audience and a different medium, but the goal will always be consistent with those pillars that I shared. So ultimately, maybe it's a movie. It's not a movie today or this year, but it's it's really agnostic to, to the medium that we use so long as it has the potential to reach a very large cross-section of people in a way that is not heavy-handed or preachy, um, but that simply coexists with where they already are and, and really represents a, a low barrier to fostering more connection and hopefully rallying around some shared purpose that is always driven by joy. And that's what the entertainment industry does so well. Um, Driven by joy. You have all the keywords and tricky phrases, driven by joy. That's another good one. (laughs) So let me ask you about you, Kate. Your work is really, it's social impact And this isn't your first rodeo here. This isn't the first time you've been thinking about social impact. So let me just ask you this. Where do you think that your sense of purpose and impact and social justice and all this, where where do you think that comes from? I wish I knew. It is in my DNA. It is part of the, it's just part of my journey. I mean, it's not There is no origin story that I can think of beyond the point that I've just always been so curious and so driven to understand what makes people tick. And I like to find the person in the room or in the world who seemingly has absolutely nothing in common with me. And that's my adrenaline. That's my like challenge is figuring out how we're going to be friends. And it's a... um, pretty simple thing that's, I used to actually be very shy. So this is something that's evolved over time, but sort of that same curiosity and like relentless pursuit of understanding the world and my place in it has been there always. And I do wonder if it comes from my culture. I'm I'm Jewish and there really is a deep tradition of service and tzedakah and elements of my upbringing. I'm not religious, but it was always there. And I don't know if that's what's influenced my drive towards service, but I have just always been on this mission and it's allowed me to say yes to jobs and opportunities that are so seemingly random on paper, but that when, you know, you're pretty clear headed about 
what you're trying to do in your life, it actually does make a lot of sense. So if you have seen my LinkedIn, you will probably have questions about (laughs) what, what I was thinking when I did this, that, or the other, but service was always the through line. It is very interesting that Saraka, you're not the first person who's mentioned that to me and not necessarily overtly religious, but often like there is a, a deeply rooted philosophy of service that informs a lot of your actions. And I, I'm speaking, I, when I say you, informs one's actions, right? But you, when you went to the University of Michigan, you made a decision to study public policy, Right. Close. They actually didn't have public policy as an undergraduate offering when I was there. So I did sort of the next best thing. And I was a political science and African studies major. So um, focused a lot on independence movements in Africa and women and culture and public health, all a political lens. But as it came to life, mostly in Africa and the diaspora, but more broadly as well. And you took some roles in the U.S. government, a CDC a communication advisor, U.S. Department of State public affairs advisor. And then around 2013, you joined the Peace Corps. So talk to me about that experience. So I loved my experience in the Peace Corps so much. I went back for round two. I actually joined <laughs> the Peace Corps for the first time six weeks out of college in 2008. I packed two suitcases and headed to Tanzania with not a single word of Swahili, not any idea what was in front of me, but with just this, again, extreme curiosity and also a sense of wondering what I was made of. And that's another sort of through line is that that I think is a very helpful trait for entrepreneurs is can I do it? Like exactly how high can I reach? What am I made of? And I don't have a background in, I wasn't a a varsity athlete pushing myself to the edge. I was a very okay athlete pushing myself kind of. And I I didn't serve in our military. I really had a, a, a comfortable life. And so there was this paired with this desire to understand people. I also felt like to really have that lens and empathetic perspective on things, I needed to also go and be and sit and and live in a community that I, you know, otherwise would never. And so that was what the Peace Corps represented to me. I was 22 when I went. So I even then had enough self-awareness to know that I would be getting a lot more than I was giving. Uh, I did what any 22-year-old with a liberal arts degree did in Peace Corps primarily, and that was become a health education teacher. (laughs) (laughs) which is, it's a lot of things and it's nothing. We focus on hand washing and goal setting and the HIV prevalence in the region where I lived was incredibly high. So lots of prevention, education. And that's also where I began really dabbling in entrepreneurship with with batik clothing. I had a co-op with lovely women farmers and we would make, we would make clothing. And mostly it was an excuse to just gossip and laugh and be creative. But that was what really I think stoked in me that entrepreneurial bug that then has since manifested in everything that I've done. But but yeah, the Peace Corps really represents the lens through which I see everything. You mentioned this entrepreneurial bug in uh, 2015. You started uh, a company called Heartfully. What was it and, and what happened? Heartfully was actually born of my Peace Corps experience. It was one of the first uh, charitable wedding registries. So essentially looking at the trends of people marrying later, of living together first, of one in three marriages being a second marriage, and recognizing that monogrammed hand towels and fine china just weren't 
not only what people needed anymore or wanted, but maybe they already had it. And so there was this opportunity to build a, to use your wedding or ultimately any life celebration as a, a legacy of love. And what Herfley did was partner with nonprofits all over the world. They could upload projects of maybe it's a, a vaccination campaign. Maybe it's filling all the books in the library or getting new books. Maybe it's building a classroom and couples based on what mattered to them could then register for bricks and cement and and roofing instead of, or in addition to sushi plates, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. It represented just kind of a beautiful foundation to whatever milestone you were celebrating, starting with weddings, it moved into other things. But the origin story of that was in my Peace Corps service when I was actually building latrines at the primary school where I lived. And I remember sitting in an internet cafe, basically dial up, like trying to navigate my my budget for how much cement costs that week and whatnot, while I got a wedding registry from a girlfriend to Macy's. And it was all the traditional household things. And I just remember thinking like, how great would it be if I could have a wedding registry for toilets? These puppies would be funded in a week. And now I actually have to go and figure out how to fundraise to build these and you know, yada, yada, yada. So I kind of had the seed of that idea then. I was still that wedding was an anomaly. I was still too young. I wasn't really in that mindset. I didn't I didn't know that I could be an entrepreneur. That's a really big lesson is that I had these parameters on what my education and experience uh, allowed me to do. And so I sort of just set the idea aside and went on to a career in government service, which was what I thought was the path for a do-gooder. I, I really thought you go and work for a nonprofit or you go into the government and that's how you contribute. And you color in the lines and you do what your boss tells you and you nudge the ball forward every day a little. And I think it will come as no surprise based on where I have been since then, but that does not work. That is not compatible with my true self. And I just remember being, um, you know, especially at the State Department, which is the sort of premier example of bureaucracy by design. It needs to be a sort of slow moving, carefully intentional process. But I'm without knowing sort of a radical entrepreneur who is appalled by the status quo. I, I constantly want to know why, but why, but why, but why? And we don't ask these questions in, in government so much, at least we didn't 10 years ago. And so I found that while I was doing what I was supposed to be doing, I was right on schedule. I was so demoralized and so miserable and I was not aligned. And so Heartfully, the idea for Heartfully sort of bubbled up again around this time. And I realized I'm young. I don't have many obligations. When else will I have an opportunity to dive off the deep end and just try and to create something from nothing? And, and that's what I did. There's a common thread that I hear from a lot of social entrepreneurs, which is one thing that you said was, I am appalled by the status quo. And I think that that, like, I, I have chills on the back of my neck because that encapsulates a thought that I hear from a lot of social entrepreneurs. It's like they want to kick, they want to kick status quo in the teeth. Right, like I, I will not tolerate the status quo. But the challenge then is to overcome, let's say, fear of financial instability. I don't have a big enough idea yet. I don't have the right skills and knowledge. I self doubt, right? And that sense of overwhelm when you think about all the things that need to be done in order to start and grow a business, right? What do you think got you over that hump? What was the 
what was the thing that got you to go from this is a good idea to I'm going to go do this thing? What got me over the hump was a lot of customer validation. I mm. I mean, when I say I knew nothing about startups and tech and entrepreneurship, I literally Googled how to start a startup. I had no idea what I was doing. I was a government suit and I had these big, messy dreams and an idea I thought was pretty good, but I didn't even have the community to validate the idea. I had an adoring mother and father. I had friends who, you know, were, were also in similar industries to me. And so I didn't know where to go. And I actually found, I I did my Googling and I found a startup weekend, which is essentially like a three-day competition. They happen all over the world where you go and you pitch your idea if you have one, and then you sort of gather around the ideas that resonate with you and build little teams. And over the weekend, you create a minimum viable product and you pitch it for feedback. And so I, I did that. I was terrified. And I ended up winning. I built an incredible team around me. The idea resonated. No one there had to be polite or nice. I knew that I I wanted that tough love and we won the whole thing. And from there, I thought, okay, that was the validation I needed to really put my head down and see if I can figure this out. Still not at a place to quit my job. I was in my mid twenties and had, you know, I was month to month on rent and basic needs like beer and uh, sushi. And of course, things that most 25 year olds <laughs> find important. So I, I didn't have the safety net to go full time, but it didn't stop me. And so nights, weekends in in every moment on my commute to work, in the shower, whatever, I was sort of scheming and dreaming. And I love yeah. saying I, I, I have meetings with people at Luma called scheming and dreaming because I just think it's an inspiring sentiment. But what I did was build an MVP and I got my first couple customers and there was really no back end to the tech side. And I just remember I pretended it was a white glove service where I would get on a Skype and ask people what causes mattered to them, who they were as a couple, and then would build them a profile of what might be like a a registry that they would resonate with and want to support. Little did they know I had three nonprofits doing favors to me that they would be part of this experiment. And I would put together little PDFs and send it to them based on what we talked about, even though I only had three options. And that's how I built my first several customers. And that gave me enough validation and traction to ultimately take it full time. And I was very fortunate to be awarded a fellowship that came with a residency uh, component and a stipend. And that was how I was able to quit my job and go full time. I love that. The customer validation and then doing things that don't scale. So you could just, you can get started and then validate it and then go from there. Can you just think about one key piece of advice that you learned, something that resonates with you still today, that you could pass on to, let's say, early stage social entrepreneurs? Yes. It's only failure if you quit. Mm. And by quit, I don't mean your startup doesn't work and you move on. I mean, you walk away from your purpose or your mission. And to me, heartfully, and I could talk about failure all day because it's such an important topic, but heartfully, ultimately didn't have a sustainable business model. It was a beautiful brand. It was engaging in a conversation in a cultural way around weddings and celebration that was really trying to redefine what 
like a gift could be a means, but the numbers weren't there. And, and so I thought, okay, well, is my ego and my, are my dreams so tied into this singular stack of code or the singular entity that this is it like pack up, go home. It's over. Absolutely not. I learned how to be a CEO. I learned how to make something from nothing. I learned what resonated and what didn't. And I learned that financial models are actually very important. <laughs> you yeah. should not kick that one down the down the line. And, no. and the numbers didn't add up. And so while it was absolutely mourning the death of a limb or an extension of you, it was okay because I was still on my journey. And that's yeah. what led me to seed spot where I was able to kind of heal over the, I was there for about, I don't know, six months, the length of whatever the length of the full incubator was for these early stage entrepreneurs. And I always tell people it's so much more valuable to be talking to getting advice from perspective from people just a little ahead of you. You know, if you're talking to the person who's retired and made it, they're going to forget the sort of the really challenging and painful moments that define you. And so I was so raw and it was a really beautiful experience, but then Lyft is where everything's changed and where I was able to take this, this power of storytelling and this connection to people. And my, my mandate again was very broad. It was like, get butts in seats, get drivers to keep driving with Lyft. And so I had a very, very wonderful manager who said, okay, just figure it out and let me know how it goes. And I took that as, okay, cool. I'm going to build a social impact strategy that makes people feel really connected to our brand. And so within 30 days of starting as a marketing manager for the Mid-Atlantic, I had built really the company's first social impact marketing strategy and let it rip. And all of my initiatives were community driven, tied to sort of the pulse of the city and it worked and it resonated. And after about a year and a half of that, they made a new job for me. And I got to bring those lessons to bear on the whole company where marketers across maybe 20 markets in the US and Canada were able to take these playbooks and and scale these pilots that we, and I called everything a pilot. That's another thing. If you're in a CSR role or whatever, call it a pilot and no one will get like concerns, it's lower risk. So all my pilots, you know, would would come to to life in DC and then and would scale and and that was really magical. That was really when I felt like, oh goodness, like digital brand, all of these sort of next level resources that come with having brand equity are game changing. And that's when I could really let the creativity rip and just like see what I could do in a way that the government, it's very hard to have that level of autonomy. In a startup, it's very hard to have that level of resourcing. And so Lyft was really that first time where it all kind of came together. And I I ran my course there. I was there three years and felt like I, I was no longer really learning. We had IPO'd. The appetite for the absurd or the intrepid was just... Um, not there in the same way. And Lyft is a phenomenal company and a great example of doing social impact in a thoughtful way. But that entrepreneurial bug in me was getting hungry. And so, yeah, the Chamber of Commerce, which is not an entrepreneurial place at all, but but represented a way to sort of shepherd business at the highest level, these Fortune 500 companies into, into programs, initiatives, coalitions that sought to create more equity and inclusion in business and entrepreneurship. And that really appealed to me. It happened at a very interesting time, right when COVID hit. And 
And luckily, we were able to move quickly. And I had a good degree of autonomy and built a small business relief fund. And within a few months, we had raised and deployed $8 million to small Mm. businesses across the country. And then I got the call from Luma. And that's when everything changed. So So, so. (laughs) that that brings us up to today. (laughs) (laughs) So Luma Pictures, or your particular project, Luma Legacy, if people were looking for you online, where would they look? Luma.inc. So L-U-M-A dot I-N-C backslash legacy. If you were to call on us to go and do something as a result of this conversation, what would it be? I would challenge anyone listening to connect with someone outside of their inner circle today. Really go out of your comfort zone just a little bit or however much you're willing to and look someone in the eye and ask them how they are, ask them what they're excited about, or reach out to someone you haven't talked to in a while and Don't think that it's awkward. Just reach out, say, I'm thinking about you. How are you? Or whatever. And then sit with that and think about how it makes you feel. And what what was the emotional cost or gain of that connection? If we can all just put a little more intentional connection into the world and compassion into the world, we'll be on the right path. And it doesn't have to be a whole life of service. It doesn't have to be your job, but just put a little out there for someone today and and see how it makes you feel. All right. Well, Kate, listen, thank you so much for being with us on Social Entrepreneur. I appreciate it very much. And thanks to you, the listener, for joining us today. You are the reason that we produce Social Entrepreneur. You can find the show notes, bonus material, and more at TonyLloyd.com. That's T-O-N-Y-L-O-Y-D.com. Well, listen, Thanks so much for joining me today. And until next time, please remember to use this one short, amazing life and go make an impact. Thanks. We'll talk to you next time on Social Entrepreneur.